Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. What was the last film that moved you? A movie that was so well-produced that it shook you to your very core. Think deeply about the film for a moment. What elements did the producer add that took the experience to a new level? Even if you can't pinpoint the producer's secret sauce, how excited would you be if he or she had a personal revolution and decided to use their skills to tell a conservation story through video? Without hesitation, you'd be one of the first in line to watch it and share with everyone you know. This thought experiment leads us to ask, what makes an impactful conservation film that isn't full of propaganda or completely misses the point? Well, everyone, I'm excited to inform you that I had the opportunity to ask these questions and so much more with today's guest. In this episode, I'm chatting with Tom Opry, award-winning filmmaker and producer. Growing up in Michigan, Tom spent his childhood exploring the outdoors. His father, a well-known outdoor writer and former filmmaker himself, inspired Tom to pursue film in college. After he graduated, his father connected him with a film friend in Florida, and Tom's career was launched. He went on to form his own production company and produced many commercial films, mostly in outdoor sports and recreation. At a fateful event in 2016, a Zambian man approached Tom and asked him to record an incredible story unfolding in his country. A chieftainess, whose people were dying from starvation, approached the man, Roland Norton, asking him to please bring opportunity to their community. For the next three years, Tom recorded the community's recovery, including all the triumphs, struggles, and conspiracies. He named the film Killing the Shepherd, which just completed the film festival circuit and was released online a couple weeks ago. Tom and I dive deep into the full story without any spoilers, I promise. If you're not a supporter of hunting, I still highly recommend that you listen to the full episode to hear how the Soli people saw hunting tourism as a solution to their plight. Tom also parallels their story with hunting conservation in the United States. It was a thought-provoking conversation, and I hope you will take a few moments to ponder on it too. Killing the Shepherd is currently available to watch at shepherdsofwildlife.org until January 15th, 2022, and will be viewable through streaming platforms afterward. I'll be sure to update you all on which platforms once they're locked in. If you're loving the podcast, please hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode, and be sure to follow Rewildology on all the social platforms. All right, everyone, here is my conversation with Tom. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so, okay. So let's, so let's, let's pause. Okay. okay. So let's go back for a second and you've already started to dive into your story, which I absolutely love, but let, let's get back into more of a like chronological order here. Obviously you did not become an award-winning filmmaker overnight. So let's explore your journey here. Take me back in time. Where did you grow up and why did you decide to go into film? 
Well, you know, Brooke, I, first of all, I want to say thank you very much for letting me to be here on the Rewildology podcast. So, and I have to say, we met each other over uh, Clubhouse and yes, so did. having discussions with a bunch of like-minded folks about wildlife and habitat conservation. And so, and you came out of the blue somehow, and then we just connected. And that's kind of the cool things about Clubhouse and some of these other platforms. So thank you for having me on today. It's a, it's a great honor and a, and a privilege. You know, I like I, I've been carrying a camera since I was 19, but go back even farther when I was a kid. My my dad was an outdoor writer. He wrote about you know all the outdoor sports and from camping and fishing to hunting and recreating and, and RVing and all that stuff for Outdoor Life and Field and Stream magazines for like 30 years. And and at the same time, he was also the outdoor editor of the Detroit Free Press. Uh, so I grew up in Michigan, outside of Ann Arbor, near some Michigan big house. I understand you're from Ohio. But uh, I won't hold it against you. Since oh, I've been, yeah, well, I won't talk. I won't say what I would say. Anyways, I, I went to Grand Valley, so I, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a part of it. My brother's a Spartan, though. So my younger oh, okay. brother. So yeah, no, I I just my dad was making some outdoor films in the late '60s and early '70s when I was you know I mean I wasn't obviously carrying a camera then, and when I got to be about 10, 12 years old, I would sneak in his office and there was these reels of film laying around in this projector, 16 millimeter projectors, and and you I don't know if you remember those things I that they used to play those when I was in you know in young in school because we didn't really have video was just kind of coming around when I got to school. And so I would stick the film in the projector and line up everything and then play these things. And it was, you know, video, video is film of these planes, float planes landing in Ontario, Canada. They were catching these big fish and walleye. And it just was really cool. And I said, man, that's that's really cool. Because, you know, you grow up, you kind of, you know, if you have a good relationship with your father, which I did, you kind of want to emulate your parents to some extent. You know, you see what they've done. And my dad, you know, my dad was hanging out with really cool people and it was fun. Athletes, you know, the Detroit Tigers, Jack Morris was always calling up my dad said, Hey, we got to go fishing someday. We got to go, you know, Kirk Gibson, <laughs> we got to go hunting, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I grew up around Ted Nugent, you know, I mean, he, he was a Stop family it. friend. So Stop yeah, I mean, but, but that was just my life. I mean, it's just, that's your, my parents' life, you know, that's what they did. But, you know, I watched what happened with the filmmaking stuff my dad did. My dad didn't really do it seriously after the, after, you know, when he did it early in his career, he was, he was a bona fide full-time writer. And when I went to college, I had a football scholarship. I told you I played at Grand Valley and they had a brand new PBS station. They had just built on the banks of the Grand River in downtown Grand Rapids. I mean, it's beautiful studio, brand new camera gear, brand new edit suites and, and all this equipment and engineering, just incredible stuff. And so I just immersed myself in that and started playing around with it. And I said, yeah, I kind of like this. This is fun. And ended up working full time when I, right before, you know, the last year or so I was at school and say working full time. I was doing a lot of, you know, 40 hours a week, you know, doing production at the same time I was finishing up, I don't know, a whole zillion hours of, of work, but I had a bunch of internships and, and so, you know, it was, it was pretty cool to, to be a part of that, but you know, it was a, a time of my life where you don't have any responsibilities. You don't have a home payment, you know, you don't have a, you know, car payment per se or anything major. And my dad had a great friend that was a filmmaker that had done some incredible documentary films. Some, I mean, some of them, one of them had actually won a golden lion at Cannes and some of his TV, you know, TV commercials. And he did fishing commercials and outdoor type stuff. And so moving down to Florida, right out of college, you know, the auto industry was, you know, kind of going on one of its down deals. And there wasn't a whole lot of jobs, even though my dad knew everybody in Detroit. And so I went down to Florida and just, you know, I had 900 bucks in my pocket and I had a little S15 GMC pickup truck with a cap on it. And 
I had all my life possessions in the back and I just started figuring out what to do. And this friend of my dad had me come in and, and I sat down and went out to, to the waffle house and had breakfast. That's where I met him. And you know, if your Northern folks probably won't know uh, what a waffle house is, but it's an iconic <laughs> breakfast joint 24 seven in the South. But the first thing they put out there was some of this funky looking yellow stuff that looked like porridge. I said, what the heck is this? And he started laughing. He says, grits, which is corn. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's almost like mealy meal in Africa. Yes. So I was like, yeah, what the heck is this stuff? But, you know, from there, he hired me and I was making 50 bucks a day. And I lived out at his house for the first three months. And then a future film came in the town and I went and did an interview and I ended up working on a movie with, um, Oh, the karate kid, whatever his name is. And, and, and Martin Sheen was also a star in the film. So I just became a sponge. And for the next several years, I worked on some future films, Iron Eagle movies, Horton Foot movies, and worked in Texas and in Arizona. And I got to meet a lot of people in the, in the film business that really knew what they were doing. Some iconic folks in production and directing. And I was working behind the scenes in production management. And I just was a sponge, tried to learn everything I could. And from there, uh, some friends of mine I'd met back in Florida said, hey, we got a Discovery Channel show we want to do. And these guys were just, you know, underwater cinematographers and videographers and they didn't really know how to run production management and they said hey you want to come back here and, and produce this thing and i'm like okay fine so it was ended up i think it was like early 90s 93 94 but it was the great shark hunt and it was uh the premiere show for shark week then on discovery channel i think it was 23 maybe 24 <laughs> Wow. Yeah, some pretty cool stuff. And then from then on, I, I ended up working. Uh, the documentary world was okay, but it was not as good as the uh, commercial film world, which is the TV commercial world. And in Florida, where I lived, we had companies coming from all over the world to do production, usually in the in the colder months of the year in the North Country. So they come down in the fall through the winter and the spring to shoot Budweiser commercials for you know, Canada, you know, we did a lot of stuff for European clients, but you know, I was constantly busy. And then a company called Sea-Doo Watercraft called me when I was 24, actually it was a photographer from Dana Point, California, a guy named Art Brewer. At the time he had just finished being the uh, photo editor for Surfer Magazine and Art's kind of one, he's become one of these icon. I mean, he's like the an Annie Leibovitz of, of surf photography. He's the godfather of it. But anyways, he called me up and said, Hey, we need to, we need to hire somebody to help us do this job. And the Sea-Doo people said, you're really good at what you do. Can you help us? And he's you know, yeah, sure. What do you got going on? So they ended up doing about a quarter million dollar production together. And um, they said, we just don't want to lose any money. And I said, that's great. How much money do you want to make? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, this is the budget, but you know, I can tell you, I, I do all the deals here. So, you know, I can certainly help you guys make sure you make a profit margin on it. And so they said, really? I said, yeah, just got to split it with me. <laughs> <laughs> I get a cut too. <laughs> yeah, I got a cut too. So yeah, it worked out really cool because uh, not only did they do very well, but I also did well. And it was kind of the start of a lot of really great things. Sea-Doo was uh, an incredible company at that time was under the Bombardier name out of Quebec. And uh, these folks, you know, they, they owned airline air company, you know, companies that were making uh, airplanes. They had, you know, ATVs and snowmobiles and watercraft and just all kinds of really cool stuff. And so they ended up hiring me on all kinds of stuff for the next, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 years. And I got my first directing gig at 27. We'd done a million dollar TV commercial the year before with an LA production company. And then the next year they said, Hey, Tom, 
And I'd worked on that, obviously, as assistant director and the line producer. And so the company or the client says, hey, Tom, we'd like to do the next project, but we'd like to do it for about half a million. You think you could help us? And I said, well, yeah, sure. So <laughs> 27, they gave me a $600,000 job to go do through my own company where I made all the decisions, the hiring and firing and all that. And so it was a really cool job. And then I, I ended up hiring a, a director of photography that worked on the project the year before, a guy named Dan Mendel. And if any of you guys are Star Wars or Star Trek fans or watch J.J. Abrams films, Dan has been the director of photography for the last two Star Trek and the last two Star Wars films and still is a good personal friend of mine. So that was the first guy that ever worked for me as a cameraman as when I was a director. So been very blessed, very lucky to have some incredible experiences. And since then, I've just, you know, I've been a gun for hire. You know, uh, people want to hire me to go make TV commercials, corporate films, that kind of stuff, but usually outdoor stuff. I've been doing stuff in the automotive industry for a long time. You know, that whole outdoor recreation world and, and field sports, all that all over the world. So I've been really, really blessed. And after a long time of helping people make millions and millions of dollars, these companies that I've worked for, I kind of felt that, you know, when COVID hit that uh, maybe there was a different calling coming here because of course, everything for everybody dried up. And, and I looked at things and I'm like, you know, I've been looking at trying to do something differently anyway. And I said, you know, maybe I need to do something that maybe gives back. And so that's why a bunch of us got together and we started the Shepherds of Wildlife Society uh, about 2018. We just sat down and said, you know what, we're out in nature all the time. We see what man's impact in it and it's not pretty. And there are some shining examples of good things that are going on, but it's, it's the exception. It's not the rule. And so what we decided to do is get together and create a 501c3 nonprofit and donate our, our content, this incredible photography. I got some wonderful wildlife photographers that have been working with us, guys that have their entire careers uh, that have made their stuff, their photography available to us. For, and we're basically re repurposing an education material. And so my forte, obviously, as I've mentioned, is filmmaking. So we've spent, oh, since 2017, I, I've been working on this project in Zambia. I was on a conservation you know, kind of panel discussion with a bunch of different people about conservation issues in Atlanta back in 2016. And, and when I got done, uh, this fellow came up to me with a strange accent, which I knew it wasn't South African. I know it wasn't you know, Australian and it wasn't UK, but it was Zambian. And he started to tell me this story about this chief that had been knocking on his door and, and wanted him to help her out. It turns out this guy had a side business in the safari uh, hunting industry. And this lady was a chief. <laughs> she was like, my people are dying. We've, we don't have any wildlife anymore, but we want you to come and, and help develop our area because we don't have anybody to help us. And, you know, and at the time he went to check it out and there was kids dying of, of starvation. Uh, of course, the parents eat first, kids eat next. And the wildlife had been poached almost literally out of existence. The national parks and wildlife folks had actually deemed the area game depleted, which means that there wasn't enough wildlife there for anybody to legally hunt. It was a, you know, a hunting concession area right next to the Lower Zambezi National Park, which is one of those buffer areas to kind of protect the park. But it, you know, the, the people that had just been just, just absolutely the wildlife resources have been decimated through, and in many cases, local extinction events occurred. I mean, there's species of animals that were there. I mean, they had the big five, you know, lions and elephants and, and leopard and Cape Buffalo and, and rhino and the rhinos didn't walk away. The elephants didn't walk away. I mean, there's, there's hardly any Buffalo, you know, back then. I mean, there used to be tons of those animals there. And so it's, it's really, it was a sad story, but the fellow that came to me at this, at this event was talking to me and he's telling me this story. His name's Roland Norton. 
And I'm just like, oh my, this is an incredible story because he had come in, he'd been there for about a year at that point in time. And, you know, he had a dream that he always wanted to help bring something back like this. Cause there, this is not, like I said earlier, this is the norm. I mean, a lot of these areas are, I guess we'll call them overused and so that they can't be utilized in the wildlife. And, you know, when you don't have people out there protecting the resource and then you end up having these folks that come in, you know, you get the, the charcoal, the, you know, the deforestation because of charcoal production, you get illegal. Now we're seeing a huge problem with Chinese coming in there and, and just stripping any and everything they can from minerals to taking, you know, lots of infrastructure jobs they bring in. Of course, they bring their own people to do them to illegal logging. And so there's a real issue there on, on the floor on that. So that's that's, that's where that led me into doing this project. And so now we have this film that I spent you know, about 120 days on the ground over three and a half years documenting the diff trials and tribulations. And I have to be honest with you, Brooke. I mean, it was, it was like you, I mean, you know, it was, it's huge ups and downs. And um, it was like living with somebody with bipolar disorder. You know, you saw some incredible things that were positive, And then you keep seeing these terrible things that are so, so terrible and um, and documenting it. But, you know, at the end, you know, my goal with this particular project was was really to to give a voice to those rural indigenous communities because they don't have one. Nobody knows what's going on in their lives. We're just finishing up about a year of film festivals. We'd submitted it to a bunch of festivals thinking that we'd be lucky to get into five or 10 festivals. We ended up getting into 38 festivals and wow, there's still there's a dozen more still looking at it. And, uh, and we've won 20 major awards. I just got back uh, last week from being in Stockholm, uh, Sweden, where we won best documentary feature in the Vastaras Film Festival, which we were up against a Woody Harrelson narrated film called Kiss the Ground, which is about protecting the earth's soil, you know, topsoil. And then another one was a film about kids in Haiti getting heart surgeries. So, I mean, some really serious stuff. So <laughs> unbelievable to be recognized that way. I mean, extremely humbling, but you know, it's just been a great story to see what's happening. And so now we're kind of at that point where, you know, we're, we're moving on to the next phase of this and trying to get this film out to as many people as we can. And it's going to be available on the 27th of November through the 15th of January at killingtheshepherd.com. It's an exclusive digital uh, cinema release. And then when that's, when that's done, then we're going to have it available on DVD, Blu-ray, different platforms, you know, the advertising platforms, the streaming platforms, you know, like the, you know, I don't know if we'll be on Netflix or not. We'll see what happens, but we've got a bunch of platforms that we're going to be putting it on. And, and the cool thing about this is I've had government people come and talk to me. We did a private screening back in December with the whole upper leadership of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Wow. Congrats. So that, you know, that's not amazing. Not the political people, but the full-timers, you know, the staff people. And then since then I've done some private screenings with other groups that are wildlife oriented groups that are wildlife centric conservation centric groups. And now, I mean, it's, I've, I've had a couple congressmen talk to me. I've one of the ranking Republicans in the uh, house natural resources committee has, has expressed an interest in trying to showcase the film to the entire natural resources committee. And then it's also at the same time, we, um, I've had the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, the president of that, come to me, the congressman from North Carolina, Congressman Hudson, wanting to show it not only to their caucus, but also to the Black Caucus in Congress. So, and we're, you know, we created a 30 minute version of the film, which it's dynamite also. And so we're actually, that was designed to take into schools for educational purposes. And really it's, it's again, it's about 
telling that story of these of this rural indigenous community and the, and the things that they have to deal with, but also their story of survival and their story of living with their wildlife resources. Because really what happens at the end of the day is, is if people don't care about the resource, they're not going to take care of it. I don't care if we're in Montana or if we're in Colorado or if we're in Florida or New York or we're in Spain or, or Africa or Kazakhstan. So you, we always have to look for solutions where people have a voice in what's happening and how it's how the management's occurring, but they have to see some sort of benefit. And that's what this film is all about, was the different types of things that occurred, the partnerships that uh, the Nortons through their Macasa Safaris company built with the chief and with the community, because you can't just do things for people. I mean, most people, especially rural folks, they're proud, they're independent. They're not looking for you for handouts. That's not what they want. But what they want is a voice and they want to be able to see positive change, positive development. And one of the coolest things that happened to me on this film was um, the first time I came back in early 2017, my father-in-law, who is a, is a heart doctor in Bakersfield, California, uh, was visiting my wife and the kids. And uh, I happened to show them some video. And, and one of the videos was uh, about a um, school that, was, that I filmed. And it's just an open air thatched roof, just poles with a thatched roof on it. And the kids are just sitting there and they're, you know, ripped up clothing, whatever else. And the teacher's not really a teacher. He's just an elder, you know, older person that has some education. He's not getting paid. They don't have proper books and education materials. They don't have desks. They're all just sitting in the dirt and stand around leaning up against poles in here. And they rotate, you know, the kids two or three times through this thing. So the younger kids go for a few hours in the morning and then the older kids and then the oldest kids, you know, kind of just, so they're only in school for a few hours every day or, you know, four or five days out of the week. And so I showed him all this and he had started about 12 years ago, a nonprofit called African Children's Schools. And yeah, I knew about it, but I wasn't like, okay, I mean, this is kind of out of my wheelhouse. It's not on my radar, but I showed him this stuff and he's like, hey, they need a school. And I said, well, that's the school. It's right there. He says, no, no, they need a real school. And I was just like, what do you mean a real school? I mean, with bricks and windows and doors and desks and uniforms and, you know, you know, a real roof on it. And I'm like, Oh, okay. All right. Well, he said, can we talk to these people? Can we talk to the, to the, the safari operator? And I said, yeah, we could probably WhatsApp them. And so the next day we're on the phone talking to the Nortons and I'm like, so my father-in-law, he raises money to build schools in the remote bush in Africa. At this point in time, I think he'd built about 40 schools, mostly in Ethiopia, um, but also in some in South Africa, I think one in South Africa. But the long and the short of it is, is within a week, African children's schools had wired Makasa Safaris half the money with a promise to pay for all of three brand new school classrooms with teachers' residences, uh, latrines, uniforms, and teacher salaries for a year. Because these aren't government schools. These are just bush schools that, for the village. And so that, I was like, wow. And so out of that, I mean, just case in point, one of the school that uh, I had filmed the first trip I went there, that school had about 80 kids going there. So that's, they built it with one classroom block. And then a teacher's kind of a teacher's office there that's lockable and whatnot. And so they bought uniforms, 120 uniforms or something like that. And within three months of that school opening up, you know, once they got it built and painted and everything set, they had like over 300 kids show up for school. There was kids coming in dugouts across the river to get to this thing. And there was kids that had never or would never have gone to school where they were now going to school. And probably one of the coolest things for me is their part of their curriculum is to learn how to speak English. It, it is the international language of business. And so now 
because I brought my cameras over there and filmed something and showed it to someone, look at how many people's lives have been changed. And it's not just the kids now, their lives for the rest of their lives and then their kids and their kids can be changed. So it's just an extremely powerful what what can happen with when you do things for the right reasons. I mean, so I've talked a lot. I know we need to have a question here. So I need to take a breath. I'm going to have a drink. And Brooke, it's your turn. <laughs> Sounds good. That was an incredible recap. Thank you so much. I, I have to ask this first. Is this your first conservation film of this style? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I've been in the film business, like I said, my whole life. I've done a lot of productions, over, but it's almost all been short format stuff. Nothing in this genre. I certainly haven't gone through the film festival world, which that was interesting to say the least. <laughs> Here's this Montana guy that, you know, I'm climbing mountains all the time and getting in boats and floating rivers and catching fish and getting on horses and going all over the place and riding snowmobiles and ATVs and big trucks. So um, <laughs> being awesome. in downtown New York City is a little bit different. So or Stockholm and some of these other places we've been. So, yeah, this is this was my first uh, feature documentary in this genre. And uh, I'll tell you, the learning curve for me was straight up and down. So I, I'm, I, I'm just shocked that we've done so well with the film and it's gotten the accolades that it has, because I'll tell you what, it was it, it was definitely a learning experience for me. And and, and I'm really excited. You know, I, our board of the Shepherds of Wildlife Society is so happy with this film that they've <laughs> they've got me to agree to do five or six more. And so, you know, we're busy trying to raise the funds so that we can continue to keep this this wave moving because you know, film and video can really reach people in a way that few things can. I mean, photography is worth a thousand words, but, you know, every second I'm shooting 24 pictures. And so those things that, that we can document and that we can expose to people that don't have access to this, because the biggest reason why we created the Shepherds of Wildlife Society and the biggest reason why I'm doing what I'm doing today is because we see in our modern Western civilization, a huge disconnect when it comes to nature. Most people don't know even where their food comes from. They don't understand how this process works. They don't understand. I mean, they wake up in the morning, they flip a switch, they expect the lights to come on. They don't care where electricity comes from. Then they walk in the bathroom, flush the toilet out of sight, out of mind. The next big decision of the day is that a chai latte or a caramel macchiato. <laughs> right. That's not real for two thirds of the world. Yeah. We, as modern Western society seem to think that we should be dictating how everything should exist on this planet. And we don't understand we're, we're actually, we're loving things to death. You know, we're, we're, we're causing the destruction of habitat and, and we're just making a lot of bad decisions as a society when there are things that, you know, I understand emotions. I, you know, I have a father, I have kids. And I mean, some of the things I saw when I was in Africa, especially the, the child brides, I mean, I have three girls, two teenage girls, and then a, a sub 10 year old. And I mean, when you're 12 or 13 years old and in the Loano and they don't have, these are subsistence farmers and they have a crop that fails because the rains didn't rain or the baboons and the army ants ate most of their food, most of their maize crop or sorghum crop. You don't have anywhere else to turn because the government doesn't have money. The UN's not there. There's no NGOs, you know, bringing bags of mealy meal for these people. They have nothing. So that's why they have to resort to the poaching in order to survive. But when you have a girl that's that age and she reaches puberty, she's worth 30 bags of maize and people sell their daughters. They have eight or nine or 10 kids. And, 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 and to give it perspective, you know, we did the same thing in this continent back in the 16 and 1700s. 
you know, even in the 18 early 1900s, because, you know, we had disease and we didn't have the medical facilities we had here. Kids worked out on the farm or the ranch and sometimes kids didn't make it. You know, they, they got, you know, got, got sick or they got hurt. So you end up having a bunch of kids so you could take care of everything. But the same thing's going in Africa right now in these rural you know, areas, these communities, you know, that's a tough life. It's a hard scrabble life. And, and it, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just mind numbing to see the fact that people would potentially sell their daughter to a man who might be 10, 15, 20 years older, who might be her second or third wife for this guy, but he has the ability to pay for it. And that's just the way it is. So, you know, this, this project has been really a big eye opener for me. And, and like I said, the, the, the learning curve has been huge. Mm. So was that your first time being somewhere where you saw that? No, I've spent a lot of time in Africa throughout my life. I'm just, you know, productions and other things I've worked on. So, you know, I've been on a lot of safaris. I've seen a lot of what's going on in different parts of Africa, but I had never, you know, when you go to it as, let's call yourself a tourist, you go there and you just see, you know, I I do what I, that's comfortable. I hang out with these people doing this, but you know, on this project, I mean, I, you know, I'm spending time with the chief and, 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 and her crawl and we're sitting there having conversations. I don't have any of the Mikasa people with me. I mean, I'm letting her, her chiefs, the chief's advisor, who was a uh, headmistress of a school before she became her advisor who spoke fluent English and the teacher didn't speak English at all. She was actually illiterate. Didn't learn how to sign her name till about five years in to a reign as his chief and so just put a big x whenever she had hmm. to sign something in the first few years but yeah it's 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 an interesting experience but you know i spent a lot of time in in mexico and there's parts of mexico that are i mean i honestly it's just it's it's, it's impoverishment you know, it's just where these people don't have access to clean water. They don't have access to, to regular, you know, health care. They don't have access to, you know, getting an education. They're probably, I would call it the most basic things that we take for granted, but the most basic human rights. And so that's part of what we're trying to do is trying to reconnect modern society, that Western civilized world, so that they understand that they make decisions that can have very adverse effects, not only on the wildlife, but the people. And if the people don't benefit from taking care of the wildlife and their habitat, then guess what? It's going to go by the way of the dodo bird. And I have seen all kinds. I've flown in private airplanes in a lot of parts of Southern Africa. And when you leave these wildlife areas that are, that are protected from logging and slashing and burning and, and illegal grazing, there's nothing. I mean, I, I flew from the Save Valley Conservancy a couple of years ago, which is in the southeast portion of Zimbabwe, up to Harare, the capital, which is in the northeastern section of the st- of the country. I don't know, 300 miles by air. And as soon as we left the boundary of the the conservancy, there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough vegetation on the ground to rub two sticks together. I mean, I don't think there was enough on the ground to, to for antelope to live in. You know, it was just all over grazed. It was nothing but these little subsistence fields. And the thing is, is the ground in that part of Africa, Southern Africa, is not the best thing to grow corn. Corn is from North America. It was brought over by the Portuguese when they were doing their slave trading, but they brought it over from North America. And they use that as a staple food. And it's been adopted by just about every every community, every, every group of people in, in Africa now. Mealy meal, ground corn is, is the basic staple. And everybody loves it. But corn takes a lot of water and it takes a lot of nutrients in the soil in order to grow. And that's not something that's very in great supply in Africa in a lot of these areas we're talking about. And there's other opportunities. I mean, these people could do cash crops. I mean, we've looked at all kinds of things trying to help them out. And in the case with the Nortons, they actually built a fish farm. 
And so they built six 30,000 gallon tanks. Each one's 30,000 gallons above ground. So, I mean, it's this crazy looking, you know, big, huge tanks. And they grow tilapia and barbel catfish in there, which are native to that area. And, you know, they, the people don't get anything for free. They have to pay the cost for it. But if there's extra that they have, they're able to sell that in the fish markets in Lusaka. And they're about breaking even on the thing. But one of the coolest things about it is that not only were the wildlife, you know, the mammals eradicated for the most part by poaching, but the fish also were too, because they kept using smaller and smaller nets. And eventually you catch fish that aren't even at an age that are mature enough to breed. So you don't get any more fish. And so the river was almost devoid of fish. And so because this fish farm is raising fish that that is the same fish that was in the in the river, they've been putting in and restocking the river and the populations of fish have been exploding, too. So it's a really it's a great story about what man can do if they start using their noggin instead of trying to destroy the you know what's there by overusing it. And again, there's examples of this in human history from the beginning of time. I mean, you I mean, just look what we did here in North America. You know, our, our Northern European colonization of North America, we came around here and we steamrolled everything and we, you know, we utilized it to survive. Then we killed it because we could, you know, market hunting. And then we turned around and wanted to get rid of the habitat because we could go ahead and, you know, make more, more progress in, in our lives, build more cities, more churches, more, you know, buildings and stuff. And it's like, people are like, well, you know, that's crazy. And I said, well, you live in a house, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, that used to be wildlife habitat. Now that wood that was that made your house, that used to be wildlife habitat. So y'all got to think that we all have an impact all the time. And the question is, is we just have to figure out ways to, to make sure that we, we save a place for wildlife and, and for the habitat out there. Because without the habitat, you know, we're not going to have any wildlife. Absolutely. And one thing that I absolutely love about this film and so anybody that's been listening to the podcast for a while has been following me knows how much of an advocate I am for conservation travel, sustainable travel. And your film highlights this to a T. I mean, it is what came in and saved this whole environment, the whole solely people like this was the way and the yeah. amazing chieftainess. This was her solution that she found and that she wanted to pursue. And even as I was watching the film with my husband and it was over, I looked at him. I'm like, now do you understand what I do? Because it's so hard. Well, how do I want to say this? It is so hard to truly understand why someone wants to go into this field until you see a film like yours, until you understand the power that it actually has to see from the very beginning. Because it looks like you were there right at the start when they had nothing. And the chieftainess, she was like, I, I need to do something for my people because my people are literally dying and seeing the young girls. I mean, like when, yeah, watching, especially that one girl that you highlighted that was clearly maybe 14 and pregnant and had a baby. I yeah, was definitely. Nyla Zulu. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, it's heavy stuff. It hit me, hit me hard. Also having, being a woman, traveling abroad a lot and going to these rural places and then having sisters, having nieces, it's, it's hard, it's hard to see. And so I'm really glad that you showcased all of that. And the next question I had on this is why do you think the chieftainess went to Roland specifically? Why did she go to Masaka Safari? Why did she think that they were going to essentially be her savior and for her people's savior. What do you think that was? 
That's a great question. And I have obviously spent a lot of time with Roland and his son, Alistair and his wife, Anne and his daughter and, you know, and all the people that work there, Yako Schwanapol, their general manager. And, and, you know, two things occurred there. I, I think, first of all, when she knocked on the door, he's sitting in his office, he owned an import export business. So the copper mining industry, that that's the big money maker for that country. And it's in the north part of the country, just north of Lusaka up on the border with, with the Congo. And so they've got this whole copper belt there. And so Roland's business, his main day-to-day nine to five job was doing import export. And that's what he did. And he, you know, and he built the company up over, I think the last 20 or 25 years from scratch. And so they're moving heavy equipment, vehicles, all that kind of stuff, importing them in and out for the, for the mining industry. But he'd been, his father had immigrated back right after World War II. His father had been a gunner on the HMS hood in World War II. And if you, if you have any World War II history, about nautical and, and maritime affairs in, in, the, in the war. We remember the Bismarck, which was uh, a major battleship that Hitler had commissioned, and it had the biggest guns around, and the HMS Hood was in a battle with it, with, I think a couple of other British battleships, and it took a couple direct hits and sank to the bottom with almost all hands on deck, dead. And his father, I think, was one of about 150 men who survived out of all, I think, close to 2,000 sailors that were on the HMS Hood. So after the war, his father immigrated to what was then called Northern Rhodesia, which is Zambia today. And he got a job working for the wildlife department. And um, of course, it's a colonial government. So, I mean, it, it's kind of imposing their feel, their will and whatnot. But he was out there, the one that was demarcating all the national parks and wildlife refuges. You know, they're lining up all this stuff and saying, hey, we need to protect some of this stuff. Now, there's pros and cons to that. But at the same time, that's what Roland grew up was that conservation ethos of like, hey, we need to protect these areas because if we don't, they're going to disappear. And so he, being in that, he also, his father introduced him to, to hunting. And so he spent a lot of time as a youth with his father out there because, I mean, they, they hunt a game to survive while they're out there because you know, there's no McDonald's down the road. There's, there's no Walmart or anything like that. So there's, it's just a totally different world. And so with that, he became passionate about hunting. So his side gig was he became a professional hunter which means he was a guide, you know, and, and if you came to Zambia or what was, you know, he was in Zambia at that point in time when he was a young boy, you could hire someone to go on a, on a two or three or four week trip to go and see all this game and hunt it. And so he did that on the side. And I think for about 20 years, and I think he's still doing it. He's been the chairman of the board of the Zambia Professional Hunters Association, which is a, is a professional group, you know, like you got lawyers and doctors in various areas. So the entire country, they all have this group where they're able to help each other and, and, and be better at what they do and create a voice for their for their industry. So he was well known. I mean, it's like, you know, the last two presidents, Roland's like, yeah, I'm friends with them. <laughs> like, okay, cool. All right. <laughs> Africa is a lot different than where it is here in the United yes. States, but you know, but it's like, Hey, do you think we get an interview with the president? I say, yeah, maybe, <laughs> you know? but, but yeah, so I, I, I don't, I never asked the first you shake Lucina uh, Tembo that question. I spent a fair amount of time with her before she passed, but that was one question I never asked, but my gut feeling on it. And based on how he explained to me and even, even his wife, Anne said, you know, Roland came home one day and so this chief was knocking on the door and she wants me to take over a depleted game area. You know, it's like saying, hey, we want you to take over McDonald's, but we don't have anything in it. No food, no nothing. But you can have the building. Hope you're good. Have good luck. And you know, maybe the equipment's in there, you know, so all the basics there, but there's no food. Right. And no staff. That's a good analogy to what he was dealing with. But he, I think because of Roland's 
experience and his is the things he learned from his father on the conservation side of things. He has been he's very passionate about wildlife, very passionate about the land, and he's passionate about the people. Both Roland and Alistair are fluently speak solely, and solely is only spoken by about 90,000 people in the world. Wow. So it's not a very big group of people. But he's been in this area. I think he 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 was there in the, in the late 80s. I think he did a couple of, of hunting safaris there. So he saw what the land was capable of before it was poached out of existence. And it, it's an, I mean, the Luana was a beautiful valley. It's, it is not out of Africa. It's not the Tanzanian, you know, Norngar crater and the, you know, the big, Serengeti. you know, it's not the Serengeti. <laughs> it, it's, it's a thick Mopani forest. Elephants had created some openings here and there and beautiful river runs through it. It's full of crocodiles. It's one of the most dangerous rivers in all of Africa for crocodiles. And yeah, they figure about 40 people a year are killed in this valley by crocodiles all up and down it. So about 120 miles from one end to the other. But yeah, and I, I think he had this passion and he's told me he had a passion for this. And he and Alistair, you know, she said, hey, I need some help. Nobody else is out here. And he's like, yeah. And she goes, and what she said to him, she goes, I heard that you were honest. I want you to come out and see what we're doing. And he's like, well, you know, he's not the government. He's like, well, yeah, sure. We'll come out and take a look, but I'm not making any promises. And so he and Alistair went out there. I want to say it was 2014. They first went out there to take a look. And, you know, it's an area where the existing model was that you make a bid to lease this land for five to seven years. And then it's, if you accept your bid, then your bid includes a certain amount of money you're going to allocate to the community, certain things you may be doing for development or projects for the community. Obviously you're going to, if there is hunting that occurs, then there's the money that's generated from that, which will pay those things. And there's a, it's not just a percentage. There's like things that they have to agree to pay for throughout the entire term of the lease. Well, of course this area had, I mean, didn't have anything. There were some pockets of antelope species, you know, impala, some kudu, some few water bucks and bush buck. There were still some lions, some, some leopards, not, not really, but just, just little pockets here and there, mm -hmm. but there was just, that's all that survived for pockets, but there was a uh, heart of beast gone, locally extinct Cape Buffalo. I mean, once in a while, an old dug a boy or two might come across the river from someplace far knows where and walk around, but there used to be thousands of them. Elephants used to be lots of elephants there gone. They, they were shot. And if they weren't shot, they left rhino. They were shot. So locally extinct elephant locally extinct. There's actually a, a sable there called a Hansen sable, which is, as I understand it, it was discovered in the 1950s by some game, you know, one of these game guys from the national parks. And it's the only place that exists in all of Africa and nobody's seen it. Now there is an interesting note. There was a national parks game scout two years ago that said he saw one. And this guy, uh, he, Roland said, Hey, you sure you didn't? There are some roan. There's some small hmm. pockets of roan. Yeah, I he saw goes, one in the film. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's a roan. <laughs> and he's like, he goes, Buona, no. I've been a game scout for 24 years. I know the difference between a roan and a sable. <laughs> so he says it was a sable. So, but it's very rocky. It's very mountainous, hilly. Not like big mountains like Rocky Mountains in Colorado or Montana, but very mountainous. A uh, lot of rocks, a lot of brush, a lot of stuff that likes to sting you. I got stung by a a, uh, the first night I was in their safari camp before they had it built, we were sleeping in pup tents and middle of the night, I woke up about one o'clock morning. I've been stung twice by a, a scorpion. Oh so, God. Yeah, so <laughs> It was interesting, but 
it's just it's a really rugged place it's it's just but it's beautiful in itself and the fact that the wildlife of just what we've seen with the wildlife when i first got there i was there back in may of 2017 i didn't see 20 animals in two weeks 20 that's crazy to think and i was it looking. really is yeah i mean i found skulls here and there we found a, we found some villages that looked like they'd fallen apart from 50 years ago yet they've been abandoned two three years earlier well like two years in 2015 is when when roland came so you know really to answer your question is i i think chief shigabot she saw that someone that she could trust that would put her people would help her because again these people are looking for handouts a hand hand to help lift them to help them up the first couple rungs of the ladder to prosperity and and that's really what they were able to do and and, and it was and it was a good timing for roland he ended up at about that same time selling his half of his import export business to his partner so he had some money and we're not people here that had millions and millions of dollars i mean just they had some money and they were in a situation where he talked to his family and they said you know what we could invest about $350,000 into this thing without getting any return. But after that, we've got to see some sort of business, some kind of deal, whether it be the fish farm or be the safari business or whatever it was. And so they went ahead and they put a proposal together. And the problem with Africa, especially in Southern Africa, almost all of these least 10 years on these on these concessions are five, seven, 10 years. Well, you're talking about an area that doesn't have any resources per se, as far as wildlife resources go. And it doesn't have any game scouts. It doesn't have any radio repeater towers, doesn't have trucks, doesn't have training, doesn't have firearms for the anti-poaching efforts, doesn't have all the things you have to have to do it. And that's a huge investment. Cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. In some cases, if it's big enough, you can spend millions of dollars on it. Easy. And so they made this commitment and Roland went and had a meeting with the chiefs and then the senior chief, because the, the kingdom of Shekabeta is one part of four other kingdoms or three other kingdoms for a total of four. So the Soli people are made up of four kingdoms and Shekabeta is one of them. And so, you know, they even had the big chief there who's a woman also, and all these ladies and all these people from the community, all these elders. And he's like, well, this is what I want to do. We want a 20 year lease. And we want a five-year automatic renewal because it's going to take 10 years just to, to maybe get this thing resurrected. And thankfully, it's less than that now. But they had some, some stipulations onto it, which the government had never, ever approved before. The National Parks and Wildlife had never approved anything like this. The other thing was, is when they first arrived there, I'd said the kids were all dying. You know, a lot of the children were starving to death. And so instead of spending money on infrastructure, things that they agreed to in the original agreement, which they got there in late 2015, early 2016, which they were there right before the rainy season start. Rainy season starts in November, December, goes through till about April. And you can't do anything in this country because when it's wet, you can't even drive a vehicle because you'll sink out of sight. So there's a window that they had to use. But when they got there, the kids were starving to death. They didn't have food. And so they stopped what they're doing on infrastructure and they put all their money into buying Mealy Meal. And they literally brought truckload after truckload after truckload and dispersed it out there just as a way to keep people alive. Like I said, the UN's not out there. There's no NGOs, UNICEF. They, none of these people exist. All they had was the Nortons and their willingness to see something through. And they made a commitment to do that. So the... I guess you call it the chief's royal council and the chief were so happy with this they said you know what if you're going to go ahead and build this fish farm if you're going to do all the things you say you're going to do you've already shown us you're willing to help us survive 
we're going to give you a, a lease and 90, you can't buy land in Zambia. Even your house, if you buy a house, you get a lease. It's 99 years. And that's your plot of land with your house on it. And is what it owned they by did, the government. That's, that's just the way the government is. It's mm-hmm. just, just the way they do things here. It's like, if you, it'd be like not getting title to your house here, but you got a promissory note that you get to keep the land for 99 years, which is transferable. And so what they ended up doing is the, the local community through the chief and the Royal council deeded them about, about, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 acres underneath the ground, underneath the fish farm. So they could secure the development. That's a key thing there, because if you're going to go ahead and put a bunch of money down to build something, if you're here in the United States, you're going to build a subway, you know, you sure as heck don't want to build it on somebody else's land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So they were able to secure that. But they also got another land lease for about the same size for where they built their permanent safari camp, which was about, I don't know, it's about a about a two-hour drive, hour and a half, two-hour drive from where the fish farm is. And it's in an area where, where the last pockets of wildlife existed. It's the best habitat and, and, and everything had not been eradicated, but I mean, to like 80% of it had been eradicated. And so they built their safari camp there. But so now two really important parts of this, Brooke, is now they have commitment for the government for 20, 25 years. That's that's a generation. And they have a commitment to protect that investment on the land by having the land. And it's, like I said, it's transferable. So 10, 20, 30 years from now, or whatever that time period is, they decide, hey, you know, we, our family's not going to do this anymore, but we'd like to go ahead and have somebody else come in and run the same operation. They could turn around and sell it. Now they could turn around and sell the fish farm to the community if they wanted to, you know, it's a transferable business at this point in time. So, you know, it's just, it's just a different mindset. And that's the problem I've seen in Africa. I know you've been there. Most people don't think real far out. Urban planning is not something anybody does. Life planning is not really a whole lot what people do. It's it's literally trying to exist from day to day. And so, you know, it's partly taking our kind of, I'll call it our, our Northern European background. Most of us have ancestry that grew up in places where it was cold. Well, we had to plan to make sure we had enough food to get through the winter and seed to plant the next year or, you know, meat and things like that. We had to figure out how to preserve it. So, you know, we did a lot of incredible things like inventing refrigeration. So we're in a situation right now where I think what the Nortons have done is I think they've changed that, that whole model, that business model. I mean, the safari hunting business, I know a lot of people say, you know, oh, it's terrible and this, that, and everything. And I'm like, guys, you don't understand what's really going on here. I mean, these people are in an area, they're protecting an area because they have a vested interest in it. So we don't have, you know, you know, poaching going on, you know, willy nilly around here. They protect it because if it's, if they don't have any animals, they get nothing to hunt. And of course, if the community is a partner in that, then they can see benefits in this. And I, I watched this firsthand. It's not like people say, hey, if, you, if you're going to go out and hunt an iconic animal like a, a lion, let's just say, you know, I know that turns a lot of people off. But, you know, if they hunt one lion out of 80 lions in the Loano, that's an $80,000 hunt. And that $80,000 doesn't go off to some bank account in Panama. Not like our politicians <laughs> or, 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 or the European politicians, you know, taking your tax money and sticking it in their own personal bank accounts. But that money gets spent right there in Zambia. 
portion of it gets spent within the community for all the things I talked about. For They built clinics, health clinics. It could go into building schools. It could go into hiring jobs. Of course, they have the fish farm going on. They've got about 180 people working for them in the community. And I know that you can do a multiplier on that. You know, anybody who's got an economics degree will tell you that that multiplier is huge. It's probably somewhere close to a thousand people are positively influenced by this. Not to mention kids getting taught English and going getting an education out in the bush for the first time. So there's a lot of multipliers in here that are positive. But you know, also one of the big things that people understand is that in Africa, we have national parks and everybody talks about Kruger and Kafui and you know, you know, all the different parks that are out there. But I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 400% more land. I mean, there's a huge amount of land that surrounds these national parks that's designated for the hunting concessions. And those areas, and, and that brings in, I think the number is that it brings in about between three and $400 million. It's not a huge amount of money, but it's almost zero footprint. There's not a noise pollution. There's not 10,000 people walking through to take photographs and walking up on a, on a lion on a, on a kill, a pride lions on a kill with 46 trucks all parked around with people taking pictures and stuff. And now you've got wildlife that's it's been habituated to man. It's no longer wild. And so, you know, there's a pros and cons to both sides of it. But one thing that I've seen in these really remote areas is that the hunting safari business really does provide a, a buffer, a way to protect these areas. And let's face it, that the national parks, just like here in the United States, they're meant to be the, you know, like the breeding grounds for these wildlife species. You know, when the animal populations, we see this in Montana with the grizzly bear, when the populations in, in the wilderness expand beyond the carrying capacity of the land, they naturally push out into other areas. We're not seeing grizzly bears two, 300 miles east of the of Rocky Mountain front out in the rolling prairie where Lewis and Clark saw them when they came here back in 1803, 1804. So, but that's natural. And the same thing happens in Africa. You know, when these animals exceed the carrying capacity, they have to go somewhere to survive. And so they continue, and, and that's a healthy ecosystem. And that's the big thing is, you know, what I see this business doing and, and in what they're doing, hunting is one part of it. The fish farm's another. There has to be other economic things that, that occur. And that's why I'm saying that I think what the Nortons have done is, is kind of, they're starting to change that model. It used to be you're in for a short period of time. You get you did what you could to make as much money as you could. You hired a handful of people. You dropped off some meat once in a while, which again, it's only a window that you're there because in the rainy season might be six months if you're lucky, but it's usually not. But now you're here full time. You got to be there for 20, 25 years. You got protection of your land, your development. You can, the land is transferable on, on a lease. You know, you become part of the community. And that's what I've seen about the Nortons. I mean, like I said earlier, both Roland and Alistair speak fluent solely. They're just a part of, you know, he's kind of an advisor to the chief. You know, the chief's like, so what do you think? What should we do now? What we'd like here? And these communities would like to have this and that. And he's like, well, we need to be careful with the wildlife. And, and with progress also comes good things, but also bad things. Oh, one of the things I've seen in Africa and I've seen in other places too, when you have something that's been downtrodden for so long and then it comes back, it attracts, it's like, it's like moths to light. You get bad actors that come in that say, hey, I want a piece of this. And I've witnessed some pretty, some interesting things here. But of course, our two chiefs in this film, and I won't spoil you guys on what the final outcome is, this, but they're under a lot of duress. There's people, there's been a long history of, of outsiders coming in and, and trying to purchase land 
you know, it kind of in, in an illegal way, or, you know, maybe just kind of sleight of hand, but, you know, you don't get in from South Africa and try to make a pitch to, to buy up, you know, a third of this concession area, the land to turn around and sell for farming, which we've already discussed doesn't work very well, but there's people willing to buy it. You don't do that unless somebody in government gives you a gay, Hey, okay. Well, the only way the government does is because somebody's, you know, sliding, sliding, you know, grease in their way at rails there. So it's, it's been an incredible story. There's great things going on. We're continuing to go back and film. Um, a lot of people after they watch the film, they're like, so what, what happened? You know, <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. what happened to this person? What happened to that person? It's like, I get all these questions. What, what happened to this chief? What happened to this, what the game scout that was a poacher, you know, now game scout, you know? And, and so what we're doing is um, the cool, one of the cool things from this book is that I have had scientists and researchers on wildlife, you know, conservation biologists and whatnot come to me. Professor Adam uh, Hart from University of Gloucestershire is also a BBC presenter, does some incredible radio shows for BBC on, on these wildlife conservation issues and human wildlife conflict. Amy Dickman, uh, Wild Crew and from University of Oxford, uh, Lion Landscapes. I mean, we've had a whole bunch of people come to us and say, hey, is there any way we could do some research in the Luano? I'm like, yeah, I, it's kind of like building schools. I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I figure we can figure that out. So now we're actually working on a program right now, trying to raise some money for the Shepherds of Wildlife for research. It's, we have a bunch of initiatives. That's one of them where we literally want to get researchers on the ground. One of the guys is an expert in leopard research, and he's just finished up a program at the University of Wyoming on deer and elk migrations. And he's got 120 GPS collars sitting in his office. He says, all we need to do is come up with the money to put new batteries in this and we can have them. And I mean, I don't know, it's like a hundred bucks a call, 120 bucks a collar. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's keep those. So yes. you know, we, still, yeah, oh, we still have to raise amazing. the money to go out and trap animals and dart them and have to have a vet and all that kind of stuff. And then you got to put them, you know, he wants to collar a whole bunch of impala and kudus, which are the primary uh, prey species for, for the leopard. But so there's some really cool things that come of this stuff. So our goal is to continue filming the Luano and bring in the researchers and their stories and what they're seeing on the science of it, the thing. And of course, the people and how things are progressing and all that. It's a great human interest story. And of course, the wildlife, you know, tenure. It's been 2015 since they start initiated. So we're into our sixth year. You know, we'll probably in another four or five years have another film on this thing. So we'll be able to see what's happened after a decade. And it should be really interesting to be able to see that. And, and my goal too, Brooke, is, is just tell the story as it happens. I, so many films I've watched, the Jackson Wild, the film festival asked me to do some preliminary judging this year. And there were some incredible films that I, that I judged, but there was an awful lot of films that I thought were nothing but propaganda. They just didn't mm, have, yeah. the, didn't have the chops about them, didn't have the right experts. They didn't have any experts in some cases. Some of them felt like it was nothing but a, a Google, you know, attempt to tell the story of wildlife conservation. But and that really brings me to a point, you know, conservation is, is a word that people have to understand. It's being misused. Heavily. There's two things. We have conservation, we have preservation. Okay. You know, fortress conservation is preservation in my book. Preservation means, hey, hands off. Let's let God figure it out. Let's let nature figure it out. I did an interview with the late Valerius Geist, Dr. Valerius Geist, 23 books on wildlife conservation. One of the top experts in the world, thousands of peer-reviewed papers, mostly on North American species. And he flat out told me, he's like, Tom, if you think God's going to sort it out or nature, you know, it never has and never will. 
And the reality is, is we have to take the responsibility because is, there isn't a square foot of this planet that we don't have some sort of impact. It, it doesn't matter if you believe in human cause, global warming or not. You go to the highest point of Mount Everest, there's trash everywhere. There's used yeah. oxygen belts. Hell, there's, there's over 100 dead bodies. You go to the lowest point of the earth, which is the Marianas Trench in the South Pacific. And ever since that Fugishama nuclear reactor deal with the tsunami, I figured it had to be something bad down there. Well, sure enough, a few years ago, Nat Geo financed a, an expedition and they they sampled the, the biologic creatures down in there. And they found out that these things have been exposed to more the worst pollutants in the most polluted rivers in China today. That's our legacy. And I've been to China and it's not a fun place. <laughs> So are we going to leave this place better than we found it? And that's really what we're trying to do through the Shepherds of Wildlife Society. That's what I'm trying to do as a filmmaker. I'm trying to give a voice to these folks that don't have a voice, these indigenous rural communities that if they don't buy into your conservation, and again, conservation is the wise use of a natural resource. And if you tell me it's not, then I'm going to say, okay, well, let's look it up in the dictionary. And what does it say in Webster's? It says exactly that. And it uses two examples. One is when you run out of water in the tap in Tempe, Arizona, or, or LA, or, or Cape Town, what does the government tell you to do? They tell you to practice wise water conservation. conservation. <laughs> exactly. Then the next thing they say is wildlife conservation. It's a renewable resource. If we take care of it, we can manage it. We can keep it in harmony. We have to work in ecosystems. And if we work in ecosystems, I mean, the big yes. ecosystem is the earth, you know, and if we want to be able to have our future generations live on this planet and in a healthy way where we can have biodiversity, you know, clean water and healthy forest and vibrant wildlife populations, then we need to give people that are on the ground that are dealing with these things, the benefit of the doubt, because quite frankly, they know more than 99.9% .9 of the rest of us in the Western modern world. And, you know, we've got groups out there that are, I mean, I just read an article today that was sent to me from the Africa, actually, I don't know if it came through the African union, but there is a move afront right now for these, in, these communities are banding together and saying, screw you, Western world. If you want to have this, you know, 30 for 30 thing and, and, and in the 2030 UN and all these things you want, you're not going to get it because we're not going to have it here if you're not going to allow us to utilize, sustainably utilize our resources. And, and then they're right. It's not like it's uh, some kind of rocket science thing here. It doesn't take a brainiac to figure it out. But, you know, part of this whole ecosystem management deal is, is sustainable utilization which includes some limited hunting that goes on because it creates an income. But again, what the Nortons are doing, they're doing it right. Not only do they have that aspect of it, but they have the aspect where they've got so many parts and pieces that are involved with the community and the things that they're able to help them with. So that, you know, I, I could envision these people one day just doing all this themselves. So they could do this themselves as long as they got the right people leading them and they have the right infrastructure in place. But the existing stuff we have going on with the hunting industry in Africa, they've got to change what they're doing. And they got to look to what like the Nortons are doing because it's a lot more palatable to, to most folks if they understand, you know, it's like, I know we talked about hunting a lion and it's a terrible thing from 99% of the people that are listening to this, but I, I think people need to understand that one lion out of 80 or a hundred and that might be in the Loano and they haven't hunted any lions there. You know, so but they may do someday down the road if they get quota from the government, but I liken it to a, a, the rat analogy. When you have a rat in your house, Brooke, what do you do to it? Get rid of it. You kill it, right? Mm -hmm. And get rid of it any way you can. Now the rat's worth $50,000. What do you do now? 
it's a little different. <laughs> you raise a whole shitload of rats, don't you? Yeah. Well, that is it. Now it's oversimplified, but that is exactly what's going on with these, whether it be Argali sheep in, in the stands or different parts of the world or Mexico. These animals are very, and science has told us that very, you know, anywhere up to, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 7% of any given population could be sustainably harvested without having any adverse effect, not only the reproduction of that family, the population numbers, but also the DNA, you know, being able to pass on those, those good genes. And so in this day and age, we, we don't have to go out and collect our food. We can go to the grocery store. Okay. But the problem with that is that think of all the things we eat that really aren't very good for us. You know, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the stuff that's full of drugs and steroids and, you know, all those things that we have going on there. And at the end of the day, would you want to have GMO, you know, organic, clean meat? And one of the things they found in Southern Africa, these animals survive better and adapt and live better on those, on that land and that environment than our domesticated animals, because they haven't been on the land for tens of thousands of years. And so they understand and they have a less of an impact than having a whole pile of cows or a pile of pigs or a pile of sheep or goats or something than you would have otherwise. So, you know, I mean, I think there's, you know, if we really want this place to be a better place, I think we ought to think about trying to have as many deer and elk and as many kudu and as many lions and elephants we can, because the more we have, that means the healthier our environment is. Absolutely. That was wonderful. You hit so many points and there's, there's one that, well, there's two that I definitely want to also just reiterate and talk about more. And one is, is definitely going back to hunting as a form of conservation. And I used to be one of those ignorant people. And I'm sorry if this comes, becomes offensive that I just said ignorant to anybody listening. Cause you're like, fuck you. I don't know. I can't know. I can't imagine hunting in any way, shape or form. And I understand that feeling because I used to have that exact same thought. And what really started to change my mind is when I started to understand that when hunting is done properly with good quotas, with great guides who understands the wildlife and understands which individuals and science are allowed is to be harvested, yep. then the money that can come in from harvesting that one animal can protect the entire rest of the population. So it's yep. like, so what's the actual goal here? If your goal is for wildlife conservation, which is great, you want you you don't want to see one deadline, which I'm I'm that way. Like I cannot fathom taking a rifle and shooting a lion. I can't. Just I, just, re I, just remember what conservation is. It's right. the wise use of a natural resource. Exactly, exactly. So what you're talking about is preservation of the lion, not the right. conservation of the lion. Right. And so, and so to go back to that point is mm -hmm. since I personally can't do that, I, I can't relate to someone who can, what I can relate though to is conserving the entire population. Mm -hmm. If one male who has lived his life, he has sired many, many, many babies. Yep. He has been pushed out of his pride and he is up for quota. And then he then by being taken from this population, then protects the rest. Well then, go for it go for it and just like you said having the local people have a say in this as well if like they feel that this is the best way for their wildlife population to be conserved and for them to have a voice because that's one thing about your film that i really love like they saw that as the answer and that is what they felt 
you know, having these hunt, this hunting come back in as a solution to their community and to sustainably harvest their wildlife and use their wildlife in that way. And so I really just want to take a second to, to chat on that too, because I especially think with the younger generation not being really in touch or because I come from a hunting family, I come from a hunting area. And so I understand, I mean, I love white-tailed deer. There's something about a good white-tailed jerky that's just so freaking tasty and elk and everything. And sometimes it's really hard to understand why somebody would want to do hunting tourism or allow hunting tourism. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. And, and I, and I think, I think what people need to understand, we talk about this disconnect in modern society, you know, you don't even know where your food comes from. There was a survey done in the Chicago public school district, the pre COVID a year or so before COVID and basically 47% of the high schoolers in the school district didn't realize that their hamburger came from an animal. 47%. Wow. Here's the fact. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you ever bought a, a happy meal before McDonald's happy meal? You know, I'm, anybody there? Yeah. I mean, it's been many years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so, yes. <laughs> but everybody in the room, let's yeah, all raise our hand. We've mm. all bought a happy meal. Okay. Well, let me clue you into something. There's nothing happy about a happy meal. You understand that? There's nothing happy about a Happy Meal. I don't care if totally. you got the cheeseburger or the chicken nuggets. With the toy. You paid someone to raise and slaughter an animal to feed your kid. Now, get, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Without the death of over 80 billion land animals on this planet and over 1.4 trillion aquatic animals on this planet, humanity ceases to exist. And you can say, okay, well, I'm a vegan. I only eat, I, I only eat grains and whatever else. Well, guess what? I can take you down off, uh, you know, out to the Mississippi uh, Delta out there in the Gulf of Mexico. And I can show you a thousand plus square miles of dead ocean because of the over sediments and, and all the issues that come off of the soil in, in our breadbasket of America, you know, whether it be the fertilization, you know, excess fertilizers to, you know, all these different chemicals and things like that. And again, you know, you can tell me, like I said earlier, that, hey, I, I don't believe in this, but where's your house sitting in? Your house used to be wildlife habitat. The boards in your house used to be wildlife. The, the hypocrisy here needs to stop because right. if it doesn't stop, we're doing much greater damage. You know, when we talk about the Humane Society of the United States, I got news for you, folks. They're not spending any money on wildlife conservation. They're not out doing anti-poaching work. They're not out there you know, protecting forest lands and habitat for wildlife. They're not paying for conservation. They're not paying for the protection with game scouts or, or for with game wardens or, or conservation officers. They're not paying for the scientists to do the research. Hunters are paying for that. And so we have to realize that it's a system that works. I mean, the North American conservation model came from Theodore Roosevelt. And when he was president of the United States, he, before that, he had ridden all over you know, the West looking for a bison because he wanted to hunt a bison. This is after market hunting, which is not recreational hunting we have here in the United States, but market hunting had been used to do absolutely that and fighting the war against the Indians had absolutely destroyed and decimated wildlife stocks throughout the Western United States and throughout all of the continental North America. And so because we overused it. And those parallels exist right in Africa today. That's what I witnessed, the same kinds of parallels. But what Theodore Roosevelt ushered in was this modern conservation ethos. He started the Boone and Crockett Club back in 1898. It is the oldest wildlife conservation organization in the world. There's nothing in China. There's nothing in Europe that's anywhere near like it. Mm 
And what they did is these gentlemen saw, I mean, they started, you know, he started the national park, not the national parks, but he started the, the national forest with Gifford Pinochet. I mean, these guys were really thinking big, you know, it's like, Hey, we just watched everything get steamrolled, but we know if we leave it alone, mother nature will kind of help get this thing back, but we can help it. And that's why we have wildlife. That's why you have elk in your yard. That's why you have deer around. That's why there's turkeys running around all over the East coast. It's because hunters went out there and put their money where their mouth was. And they actually created and protected these environments. So the wildlife, I mean, look at ducks unlimited. I mean, we've got some of the greatest populations of waterfowl. Matter of fact, there's, there's in many cases, more animals now, much more animals now on the landscape than there was when the, when the, the pilgrims showed up at Plymouth rock and much more animals than when the conquistadors came because when the conquistadors came to this continent there was hardly any wildlife because there was a lot of humans here and they were very effective killers taking point dr geist told me about ten thousand years ago what went what what would extinct ten thousand years ago in in north america all the mammoths yeah woolly mammoths all the our version of an elephant with hair and the reality was if you look at the archaeological record humans at ten thousand years ago figured out how to make poison. And if you look at their arrowheads, they now at that time, you'll find them with these little grooves in them where they could put that paste of that poison they made. And according to Dr. Geis, they were able to have one, you know, prior to that, it would take an army of guys throwing spears and rocks to try to kill one to eat. But then at the same time, now they could take one guy with an arrow, bow and arrow, and they could shoot that thing, that, that animal in its belly fat, and it would kill the animal. One man, one arrow could kill that animal now without putting a whole lot of, of undue stress or danger on the hunter. And that meat would be that the, the poison would metastasize out of it because of the belly fat. And they could have all that stuff. Well, what coincides with that? The total extinction of of you know, of the woolly mammoth here in North America. So, and the woolly rhinos, same time period. So we have the ability to destroy any and everything. And we have a long record of doing it. So when we talk about the North American conservation model, it is absolutely the best wildlife conservation model that we've ever come up with in modern time, at any time in human history. Southern Africa, they, you know, I talked about this ranching for wildlife they have going on. They have more wildlife than they have ever had in, in their recorded time period. And it's because the wildlife has a value and it can live very well in, in you know, its habitat. That's what it lives in. So there's, there's some people say, hey, we shouldn't be hunting or hunting's terrible and stuff. And I'm like, well, listen, folks, you're, you're causing all kinds of degradation and destruction of habitat with the decisions you make, the products you buy, things like that, or the groups that you support. Or, you know, at the same time, you're still going to the grocery store. I mean, where's the grocery store get this stuff from? And at the end of the day, it comes from a rancher, whether it be a corporate farm or be a family farm. I'm actually working on another film right now about ranching families. And, and again, they're, in, they're an indigenous rural community. And they're dealing with all these threats, whether it be, you know, animals, uh, you know, predators, uh, grizzly bears and wolves that aren't being managed on the landscape or, you know, other outfits and other people from outside the area trying to impose their will and their way of life on these people that have been on the ground for, in some cases, you know, 120, 130 years. And again, most public wildlife in North America, especially in the Rocky Mountain West, lives on private ground. So if that person, that rancher doesn't see a benefit from having that elk or that deer or that pronghorn antelope on his land, why should he keep extra grass out there for him? You know, you got to start thinking about these things because these people are really the stewards of this, this public resource. So there's some really important things we have to understand. And none of this is simple. It's very complex. 
it's not, you know, it, the big thing is, is we've outsourced our killing, our modern society is. And, and, I, and I honestly start thinking about, there's two major events that happened to occur. The first one is the Lacey Act. You know, we enacted this law to stop market hunting. Again, it has nothing to do with the hunting we have today, but market hunting where you out shot everything and, and for the pot and sold it to whatever, whoever would buy it from you. You didn't eat it yourself, which is the bushmeat industry we have in Africa today. Mirrors it completely. But we also have a situation where we had the Great Depression. Prior to the Great Depression, most people had friends or family members that owned a ranch or a farm. So I grew up going to a farm in uh, Indiana and, you know, my grandpa chopped the head off a turkey and then I'm a turkey off a chicken and, and then it ran around the yard. You know, most people are like, oh my, you know, I can't believe that. But it was just expecting. Nobody worried about it because we knew that that, that guy was going to get boiled and we were having chicken salad for lunch tomorrow. That's where your food comes from. It comes from other animals. And the fact is, Brooke, everything is trying to eat something to survive. Absolutely. Obviously, our omnivores and our predators are trying to eat other things. And you walk around your house, if you got spiders, that's a good thing. That means you, you got something to eat in the bugs. You know, mm -hmm. and the bugs, if they're yeah, not mosquitoes. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, is we have to understand, a lot of people don't realize that we talk about carrying capacity. And people go, well, what the heck? That's just some scientific term. No. If you were to take, you know, what I try, you know, right now we've got a problem in Botswana where there's too many elephants. And everybody says, well, there elephants is. are it's a big well, problem. No, they're, they're not endangered. You know, just like, you know, wolves are not endangered. We got more wolves than we know what to do with. Not just in the lower 48, but throughout Canada and Alaska. I mean, there's wolves everywhere. There's grizzly bears everywhere. But the problem we have is that people don't really understand that it takes so much, so much vegetation on the land for an elephant to survive. Well, right now, I think there's about 140,000 elephants in Botswana. Botswana is a semi-arid country, you know, it's some almost desert. And in some cases it is desert. And these elephants crowd into areas, especially where there's rivers. And when they get mm -hmm. to be too many of them, they literally destroy. And I have seen this myself. I saw it too. Miles and miles and miles of wasteland that looks like something out of, of an apocalyptic movie. You know, there's nothing alive, not even a blade of grass. And that's because- All the because, trees have been over. Yeah, they're, they're just dead. Just they're just skeletons out destroyed. there. And I'm not talking about a little area here and there. I'm talking about as far as the eye can see. And this is all from there being too many elephant on the land. And what I liken this to is if you were to take, you know, how many people have been to, to New York Central Park? You know, it's this great big park in downtown New York. Okay, you know, let's go ahead and put 150, 200 people in there. And you're going to go in there on this Friday and you don't come out to a year from now this that, you know, and, and see what happens. Well, the first thing these people are going to do is they're going to cut down all the wood so they can have fires to stay warm in the winter. Then where are they going to get food? And, you know, you can't eat grass, not very well, can't eat trees very well. So if there's any squirrels or pigeons or any, any animal comes in, any fishing, tadpoles, whatever, everything is going to be eaten. And at the end, they won't make it a year. They won't make it a month or two. And then they're going to be strife and civil strife and problems. But my point is, is that the land can only handle, it can't handle a couple hundred people in there. It might handle 10 if they can figure out how to live sustainably. And that's what we have to figure out. The biggest problem on our planet today is us, human beings. And it's the seven and a half, I've heard 8 billion humans on this planet. And, and really what we need to do is make sure that we that we give a hand to the people that are out there that are going to try to, you know, maybe going to be these last bastion of defense against this human tsunami of, of, of our population because 
we don't have anybody out there caring about the land because they're more worried about, like I said earlier, is it a chai latte or caramel macchiato or, or whatever's on the latest Facebook posting or Instagram or Twitter. And they sit around here and all everybody's business now. But the reality is we, we make these decisions that have really adverse effects. And, you know, to the politicians out that are listening, you know, hey, think about the downstream effect. If you're telling somebody in Africa that they can't benefit from their hard work and wildlife conservation, how are you different than some British colonial master from the 17th century? How are you different from somebody from the Ku Klux Klan? Because that's why you're telling, it's what you're telling me, it's what you're telling these people there, that they, they don't have a right to the most basic human rights that we all take for granted. And that's when you have to start thinking about, because, you know, when you start talking about importing the trophies and banning this and whatnot, or banning the hunting of this, or you want to politicize, you know, vote for me and I'll ban this type of hunting or I'll ban hunting for the species. How does a wildlife scientist, a conservation scientist and biologist, how do they manage an ecosystem when they can only work with bits and pieces of it? You either work with the entire ecosystem or you don't do the job. I mean, it's like trying to trying to uh, reconcile your checkbook, but you can't look at Tuesdays and Thursdays every month. You just have to work on the other ones and estimate what you think you're doing the rest of the time. And that's what we're doing today with all this litigation. And of course, the people that are bringing on these lawsuits, they get paid money. You know, they got millions. In some cases, I think uh, you know, Humane Society is about $200 billion or $200 million company or nonprofit. I know that a lot of groups like them, I think all together, they, they bring in about a, close to a billion dollars for their efforts. And it pays for a lot of suits, pays for a lot of lobbyists, a lot of attorneys, pays for a lot of ad campaigns, $600, $800 one-page ads in People Magazine. And what does it do for rural indigenous communities? What does it do for wildlife? What does it do for wildlife habitat? Nothing. Zero. Matter of fact, it does a lot of bad things. It's, it's a negative impact on those things. And so we just have to realize everything we do every day has an impact on the world. You make a decision, the product by products, or you take your garbage or what kind of things you use. I mean, all those things are, do have a downstream impact. And so we just have to be thinking about, hey, how can we do this right? And maybe we shouldn't be vilifying certain people or certain you know parts of our society and saying, hey, you know what, maybe I need to open my eyes out and see what these guys do. Because you know, I grew up like you in a hunting family and, you know, I love to eat pheasant. I don't know anybody who doesn't like to eat pheasant. I love venison jerky. We make it every year. My kids and I always are out there, you know, hunting and harvesting game. We fill up our freezer with huckleberries. I mean, we get as many huckleberries as we can. You know, here in Montana, they're worth $80 a pound, by the way. Don't tell anybody that. Um, <laughs> don't mind your freezer. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we love to catch walleye and perch. We love to catch a lot of, you know, hunt and fish and collect from the, what mother nature has out there. And I think if, if more people were to do things like that, where they interact with nature and they care about it and they keep an open mind. Again, you know, hunting a lion's not the right thing for everybody, but if we can find 50 individuals or 100 individuals over the course of the year that want to write an 80 or 100, $120,000 check, you know, God bless them. God bless them what they're doing, because you know what? Without that, there wouldn't be any lions. And I got lots of scientists that will tell you that right to your face. If you don't think that you're going to have wild lions by banning the hunting of lions and the importation of the trophies, and you think somehow that's going to make Mother Nature wonderful and everything's going to be wonderful with that. Again, when the old lion 
you know, gets kicked out of the, out of the pride. He doesn't just, obviously the females do most of the hunting. Yeah. He, he can hunt for a little while, but he's going to get to a point. He might be nine, 10, 12, 13 years old, you know, like Cecil, the lion, you know, I don't know about a lion having a name, but nobody in, nobody in Zimbabwe knew who Cecil was except for the photo safari guys. And <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, and that's another story. You know, how did it get a 13 year old lion in the wild that had this incredible coat that looked like he just came out of a, a cat commercial, a shiny, silky coat and great muscle tone, but that's for another discussion. But yeah, you, you look at this and you just say, Hey, you know, maybe it's not a good thing, but at the end of the day, the benefit outweighs the, the negative stuff. And we're, we're going to eat game. We're going to eat steaks. We're going to eat chicken. We're going to eat turkeys coming up on Thanksgiving. You know, we're going to have our, our hams and stuff. And, you know, that's all, you know, it's just natural. It's what we're supposed to be. That's what we, that's how we survive on this planet. And the key is just making sure we leave it better than we found it. Right. And what gives me so much hope, and I'm sure that you've you've started to see it as well. I feel like there's there's a movement coming, especially as like some of the younger generations are getting more aware and more in positions of possible power or decision making. That I think there's there's this big reconnect that's happening, and there's more conversations happening about bringing in local voices. And because before it was very much there's conservation and then there's people and now there's really starting to be like well you can't have conservation without people conservation wildlife conservation is actually people management and that is starting to become more delight which i love so then all these people are more empowered we get to share these voices also too more of this like rewilding movement there's all of this awareness that's starting to happen that's starting to boil and seep over into like different things and I think people are just really starting to open their eyes to this type of stuff and and this way of life and and people who do want to get more connected with the land and and everything and go to these far off places and meet these people and see films like this and be a little bit more open-minded and that's what makes me really excited and that's what gives me a lot of hope because I have conversations with people all the time yeah there's a ton of people that are really loud on social media about damn you if you're not a vegan and damn you if you do this and like all this kind of stuff. But that's very a few minor subset of people that are that are screaming and shouting these things. Yep. It's most of us that are coming together and being like, what's the actual solution here? What is actually going to move the needle? There are way too many people, people that are living in far unacceptable, far below what's acceptable in any way, shape or form. The fact there's still child brides, the fact that there's still no women's rights in so many places of the world. It's like, how do we solve this and keep our wildlife? Because we can't just look at the wildlife here. We have to look at the people who live with them because if they have everything they need, then the wildlife will thrive because the people won't be reliant on taking their resources unsustainably. So it's full picture here. I mean, it's the same in the U S it is the mm -hmm. same abroad. It is in so many places. And yeah, yeah, you're hundred percent correct. I mean, the issue is humans and the reality is what people need to understand. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I judged a bunch of uh, feature length documentaries for Jackson Wild this year, you know, the kind of the Oscars of the wildlife filmmaking world. And, you know, what I realized, what, why my film and the films I'm making now are so different than what you see coming out of the BBC and Nat Geo Discovery Channel. I, they're incredible films, incredible filmmakers telling these incredible stories, but they're all 
about a specific animal or a specific ecosystem, you know, an area, a valley, or an ocean, a sea, whatever, a mountain, mountain range. They're, they're about issues. But what they all forget and what they don't include in their films is the 10,000 pound gorilla in the room, us humans. Like I said earlier, we have an impact over every bit of the earth. Every one of these animals survives or lives on this earth because we deem we want it to. If we don't want it to, it'll be gone. And that's when you say, when we've got these new generations, the local of our movement, wanting to eat sustainably from things that come from your home, why do we ship grain from Montana to New York? Why can't New York grow its own grain? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I got some friends that are farmers and won't be happy with me, but the reality is, is, hey, I'd like to keep your grain here. And maybe we don't need as much of our land in, in grain production. Maybe some of it can be turned back over to wildlife. You know, if, if we take our national forests, I mean, do you know that some of our forests in the United States are 100% managed for either berry or mushroom production? Well, why aren't we managing these, these grounds to also produce wildlife? You know, whether it be rabbits and squirrels or deer, uh, turkeys, you know, elk, whatever this is. But that's put that emphasis on that so that because the more wildlife we have and the more habits we have, a more our ecosystem is going to be much healthier. We have that biodiversity that we need. And predators have a place in that. So I think is hunting a great thing for some people. You know, it, it, there needs to be a reset on ethics and some other things within the hunting community. But overall, I think we all understand that for as long as humans have walked on two feet, no matter what your political beliefs are, where you're from, your nationality, your religion or anything, I think we all can agree we've hunted and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And whether, you know, you want to outsource your killing to somebody else, that's up to you. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people get squeamish because they don't want to deal with blood, but they've learned to be that way. That's not the way we've always been. Just haven't been exposed to it. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's about being able to utilize the resource, caring about the resource. And when we do that, then we, it's going to be around for a long time. And that's the most important thing is people have to understand that you may be told something, but keep your mind open. And, and that's my goals. I want to reach that. 70, 80% in the middle who don't really care one way or the other. They're not hunters or they're not anti-hunters. They're just people that care about our planet, care about our society, care about wildlife and, and, and wild places. And, and I think at the end of the day, those are the people that if they get educated, so they're not ignorant about some of the things that they see. I mean, you know, social media, there's groups out that are weaponizing, you know, this trophy hunting thing and hunting this and hunting that. And unfortunately, these people are extremely insincere with what they're doing. They might, they may think they're doing it right, but actually they're, they're doing a lot of wrong. And then on the hunting side, there are some groups out there that do hunting for the wrong reasons. And so, and that's what gets broadcast, you know, you know, you see these guys out there and again, because we have this disconnect and you see some guy holding this big antler deer or this elk and he's got a big smile on his face and when you outsource your killing and you don't like to see blood anyway you don't understand why would a guy be standing next to this animal that he's killed you know i mean it's a difficult thing to fathom and to accept but at the end of the day you know we're responsible for killing a whole lot of animals on this planet and it's a good thing because without it humanity ceases to exist yeah and i also love that point of how you're trying to connect with a solid group of, of people that are very open-minded to this kind of stuff. They're like, I don't know how to solve this. I, I really don't know, but I'm very open. And while social media is such an amazing tool, and I'm a big advocate for using people's platforms to share their voice, especially good messages, because we need more of it because there is so much bad. 
And very recently, Bill, he's my mentor, and now I work for him at the Wild Source. He very recently went on a rant, and I, I really loved it because just sometimes it's so easy to not think things through that there was a prominent person in the conservation world, I guess you can say, advocating hardcore for people to stop traveling to Africa because of all the carbon emissions it puts out. And he's like, if you really tell people to stop going to Africa, what the hell do you think is going to happen to all of that wildlife for no tourist dollars coming in? So again, bringing to your point, like not thinking this through, just like blasting yeah. it out. Yeah. Well, yes, climate change is a huge issue. We do need to reduce that. But, you know, actually talking to your politicians, putting money, literally your money where your mouth is and because your dollar will dictate what businesses do. Because if you're like, I'm going to go with this option versus this option, that business is going to listen to you. It's industry that's some of the biggest drivers of climate change. It's mm -hmm. not your wildlife loving person that wants to go to Africa that is helping save and prosper the solely people that you went and saw in Luano. Like, no, I, I mean, case in point in Luano, BCP Biocarbon Partners has about a third of the of the lower Luano under contract with the people of Shikibeta. They pay out a hundred and some thousand dollars a year to the local community so that they won't deforest the land for charcoal production or to sell the timber to the Chinese. And so that's wildlife areas that are protected, but it's also being protected because of that carbon sequestering that goes on in that area. So all of these wildlife areas that are natural, it doesn't matter if it's prairie grasses or if it's trees, they all will absorb carbon. And there's ways to deal with the carbon issues. I've, I've got lots of friends that are in the, in the oil and gas industry that are scientists and they're like, yeah, we have the technology to put pull CO2 out of the air. The problem is we're not paying for it. You know, we're not capturing it and sticking it back in the ground where it came from. And we have the technology to do that. We could use all the fossil fuels we want in the world, but we're just not doing it right. And again, it's about being open-minded. The same thing happens with wildlife and habitat conservation. If we're open-minded about it, we see positive change. We see people taking care of things. None of us has to have a degree in wildlife conservation or wild, you know, some sort of wildlife biology, but we do know there's people out there that do it. And science has to be king at the end of the day. It can't be emotion. Yes. Because emotions are not going to get you across the finish line. They're actually going to put you in the opposite oh direction. God, I could be like in like neon lights across the screen right yeah. now. <laughs> the same way. <laughs> oh my gosh, I cannot so, agree with more. So Killing the Shepherd, uh, it's a, it's a feature-length documentary. Like I said earlier, it's uh, been accepting 38 film festivals. It's won 20 major awards, everything from best cinematography, which is been quite a few times, but probably the most important thing. And, and the really thing that really tugs at my heart is the awards we've gotten for, you know, indigenous filmmaking, that story, social issues and, and human rights. And that's really what this is about is making sure that these people have a voice. And that's my goal is to give them that voice so that they can, so they can reach the, the world. And so I'd say that if you could, if you can go and watch the film and share it with your friends and, and talk about it on social media, go to uh, killingtheshepherd.com. You can buy a digital cinema ticket between November 27th and January 15th. And then after that, it'll be available on all these other platforms. You'll be able to, I'm sure you'll be able to Google and find it all over the place, but do, do us all a favor, help us spread the word about this, this incredible story about these great people in, in Shikabeta and the Nortons and what they're doing for wildlife and habitat conservation and what they're doing for these local indigenous communities. Because, 
you know, without that buy-in, we're not going to have the wildlife and the wild places that, that we have today. And, and I think it's important to me. And I think it's important to everybody out there to have that knowledge, knowing that we've got people that really care about the resource and they're going to ensure that biodiversity for generations to come. So Shepherds, uh, you can go to shepherdswildlife.org to get a lot of information about what we're doing there. Of course, that's behind these films, killingtheshepherd.com if you want to watch the film, but you can actually find it from Shepherds also. So, but we're on social media, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook. You can find me at T.A. Opry. A lot of people go, why do you go by T.A.? Because aren't you Tom? And I'm like, well, yeah, my dad's Tom too, and he's still alive. And I told you earlier, he's a, was a, actually was a very accomplished journalist and, and was part of a, a team that won a Pulitzer Prize. And so since he's still around out, out of uh, respect, to him and i am writing a book about this film too uh, and wow. i've written quite a few articles about it so i, I go by ta just even that we both had the first same first name and different middle names so that way i, I don't want any confusion there but confusing myself talking about it but <laughs> yeah so we're available you know shepherdswildlife.org to find out information about me and uh, you can always find my personal accounts also on instagram and twitter well i guess i'm not on twitter but instagram and uh facebook and uh you know, LinkedIn. I don't know. Every once in a while I'm on uh, clubhouse. So <laughs> yeah, I haven't been on it so long. I've yeah. been on it so long. One of the last times is when I connected with you, it just was meant to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, you can DM me anytime you want. I always will respond to questions and we just would love to have your support. We have a store on Etsy too. If you want to go shepherds wildlife, check out Etsy. We have a store. We got lots of like this shirt right here. You know, this is a uh, Got the movie poster out here. You know. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, got the movie poster over here. So I need um, one of those. <laughs> yep. So if folks want to do that. We'll have DVDs and Blu-rays out first part, you know, probably January, February. And and then the book I have is it's uh, 72,000 words right now. So it's it's telling the story of this entire because when you make a film, there's only so many things that you can really include in a film. And right. So when writing a book, I'm able to fill in all the holes. I get people asking me lots of questions, and I'm like, well, there really was no place to to put that in the film. Whereas now with the book, I can really go in depth about why things are the way they are, what occurred. And I, and I literally tell that story of my experience over the course of three and a half years, spending that time traveling during COVID, the height of COVID, you know, all the things that we did going on, you know, on anti-poaching uh, missions, getting embedded with the scouts, going in at night, locked and loaded with AK-47s, not knowing what was going to happen. I'm sitting here with a camera with a picture light on it, you know, lighting up the side of the, you know, of, of the, of the forest, knowing full well, if, if this is an ambush, I'm going to be the first one to get shot. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting book and, and I, I've tried to write it. So it's entertaining at the same time, besides just giving people information. And um, I think people really like it. So it'll be out early part of next year. I think probably February, March. And um, if you don't catch the film over the next couple of months online, I know that we're going to be on PBS. We're working with uh, the PBS station, uh, Valley PBS in Fresno, California. And so we're going to have uh, probably in March, we're going to have a, a broadcast there that probably will get picked up throughout all of California and maybe the rest of the United States. So we'll see how it goes. But And stay tuned on our social media because I think what we're going to do with that is have a live panel discussion after the, the showing of the, of the film. But we're also going to have a, a panel discussion at the end of this film online too. So we've got some people lined up from Africa. They're going to talk about their issues and how they relate to what we've documented. And, and a lot of the things that you and I talked about today on this podcast, you know, some folks, uh, Africans talk about Africa with me along with, I think we're going to have Professor Hart on there from the University of Gloucestershire too. So we'll have that science side of things at the same time. So 
you know, it's been cool. It's been real. Oh, it's been awesome sitting here. I had a chance to tell you, and, and I want to thank you for letting me be on your platform and, and be able to talk to your audience. And again, you guys can find me online, PM me anytime you're or DM me, and I'll definitely get back to anybody that sends me a message. Awesome, Tom. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to get this out and share your film to the world. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.